You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It is Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I've been very excited about this show because this week's guest just published a book, the title of which, Bring Your Human to Work, put a smile on my face. And I am not the only one. I was reading her reviews on Amazon. And Liz, who I don't know, but who is the founder of a small business, wrote, Erica totally gets it. In the face of a dramatically changing workplace, AI, gig economy, etc., how does the human part fit in? Erica shows us exactly how by bringing our human to work with 10 excellent ideas on the actual how we are equipping ourselves and our companies to attract and retain top talent. Erica Kesslin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am really, really happy to have you here because it seems so necessary in these days and these times where you can't walk down the street without tripping somebody who's got their face in their phone to go back to focusing on human interaction. Mm -hmm. How'd this come up for you? Well, I've always been a connector. So if you talk to people who have known me my whole life, you know, they would say the one word that we use to describe Erica is a connector. And what do they mean? They mean that I love to introduce you to my friend who might be looking, you know, for some advice on money. Or I might want to introduce you to a friend who just wrote a book and you might look be looking for another podcast. Not because there's anything in it for me. I get sheer joy out of making those connections. The, and I'd, say the, I'd say the other side is I've set up three marriages and I've worked as an executive recruiter where I've connected great people with great jobs. So it's kind of followed me throughout. Well, and if we look at how you got on this show, I mean, you've been on my radar for years and I think I've been on your radar yes. for years. I don't know how, but I did end up on the mailing list for your company, The Spaghetti Project. But it didn't all come full circle to me until I was having dinner with my friends, Mark and Debbie, and Mark said, oh, you should get my friend Erica on your podcast. And I was like, (laughs) I know Erica. But, you know, it took that human connection to bring it all together. Well, it's an interesting example because one of the stories that happened that, that said to me that I need to write this book now was after a conversation with a CEO who told me that in his company there was a conference call. And he found out after the call that all nine people had called into this conference call from the same building. So in other words, all nine of them were an elevator bank, a cubicle, or a few steps away from each other. And I said to myself, what would make someone forego the opportunity to connect with their colleagues face-to-face? And and my research showed me that left to our own devices— you know, excusing the pun, we're not connecting. And so to me, you know, we are still, we make decisions. We do deals based on relationships. So while you and I were on each other's radar, it was that 
personal connection, that dinner with with Mark when when you connected to the to the dots, you connected the dots and made the call, and here I am. And it happens all the time when we're talking with our kids about how you get an actual job these days, right? It's always, you got to get out there. You got to meet somebody. When I'm talking to my reporters, I am very adamant that they not do it by email, but they are on the phone or they're out there meeting people. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of this is humanity. So what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a human workplace? If I were to boil it down to one line, bringing your human to work is about honoring relationships with your boss, with the person that works for you, with your clients, your colleagues, and and also with yourself. Because when people connect as human beings, there's a physiological response in our bodies. Our oxytocin, that feel-good hormone goes up, and our stress goes down. And so a human workplace is one where the leaders think about creative ways to curate connections Mm -hmm. because it used to be much easier. But now with technology, we're distracted. We hide behind the technology. We, We have to be more intentional about how we do it. And the leaders that do create a more human workplace. I've been in a number of workplaces lately that I think have been set up to do just that. There are workplaces where the offices have disappeared. There are a lot of couches. There are booths. There are tables. There are some phone booths in case you need to make a call that you Mm -hmm. need quiet for. And some people like them and some people hate them. Yes. So the pendulum is swinging back and forth as we speak. There's a chapter in the book called Space Matters. And so I address this issue directly. Best practices around this issue that you're talking about are having an open space with lighting that makes people feel good to be at work, that you want to have ways to have spontaneous collisions and interactions because the days where everybody's around the water cooler are few and far between given that everybody's inboxes are are overflowing. So there is less of that. But the companies that do it best make sure that there are many, many places for privacy, many, many phone booths, conference rooms with for two people, for four people, for eight people. Because what I found is when you err on the side of having everything open, people take vacation days to stay home and get actual work done, which is the antithesis of what you're trying to do behind this. Right. You're trying to enable people to talk face-to-face, not to just spend all their time talking. Right, but people end up wearing headphones because they can't think straight to get their work done. So some companies will have certain places to go where it's you need to speak in your whisper, your library voice. One of those companies in the book is the company Lyft. Mm-hmm. One of their values is create fearlessly. And how can you create fearlessly in an office that is 100% open? And so it's a funny story in the book where the founder is actually obsessed with Willy Wonka. And on there's a door, like a secret door with a picture of Willy Wonka. You enter that door and it's it's set up like a library, and everybody knows it's a place to whisper or ideally not even speak. And people can go in there to create fearlessly. Speaking of voices, 
you talk about speaking in a human voice in the book. What do you mean by that? A human voice is an authentic voice. And the first chapter in the book is called Be Real, How to Speak in an Authentic Voice. And that is about not just having a set of values like many companies do, but it's about getting those values, what I call, off the walls and into the halls. These values need to be alive and they need to be real and they need to be authentic to your company's brand. And a mistake that many companies make is that they have way too many values, 10, 12, 14 values. What's enough? To me, the sweet spot is four to six. Some companies even have three. You need to boil it down to what is the soul of your company? What do you stand for? And the test that I use, the litmus test, I call it the fork in the road. So if you're at a fork in the road and you don't know which way to turn, you don't know if you should hire this person, fire this person, launch this product, do this deal, your value should help guide you. And if they're not, you probably aren't quite there yet in terms of having them define the essence of your culture. I do want to talk a little bit about hiring from both sides because it's really hard to do. I, I run a small business. I have a small team. And for me, that means every hire feels like, oh, my gosh, what if I get it wrong? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's the same from the other side. If you're looking for a job and you're choosing it it does it feels like it's such a big decision do you take it how do you know from the employer's perspective but also employee's perspective if this is the right fit mm -hmm. i'll start with the employer if you think about you know for if your listeners are are looking to hire people for their companies and are targeted you know millennials are going to make up 75% of the workforce by 2025 and 50% by 2020 and when i talk about those stats or when i've been talking about them 2020 always felt so far away it's less than a year and a half a year yeah. and two months so it's a little bit crazy how these new generations are transforming the workplace so from an employer perspective my advice is to think about what are the top three things that employees want in your workplace? Because the other thing about what I talk about in the book in the human workplace is many of the things in the book you don't are, are not that expensive. It's about being intentional. So what do employees really want today and how can you as a small business owner or a large company provide it? Number one, employees want purpose and meaning, and they want to feel like they're connected to something bigger than themselves. And it might be easier if you work for the Red Cross or a not-for-profit to be able to make those connections, but it is doable in any kind of industry. Number two, employees want flexibility in how, when, and where they work. And I'm not a huge fan of everybody working from home all the time, mm -hmm. although I've seen companies with great cultures that do have people remotely all the time. And you know, if that's of interest, we can talk about how you create a company where everybody's remote, but it's doable. And number three, and almost most important to, to employees today, they want to feel like they can grow on the job. And especially in a small business, really in every business today, you know, these are not the days of, you know, General Motors and IBM where there were a thousand rungs in the ladder and every year you got a little promotion and moved up. So companies need to be more creative about how to do that. So I'm almost working backwards because as an owner of a small business, knowing what the research is showing about what employees want, 
Number one, you need to make sure that they fit within your company values. Mm-hmm. And let's say that they do. They have the technical skills. They, they, from a culture perspective and the values perspective, you believe that they will be additive to your culture. From there, you also need to think about this is what this generation wants. How can I, once I bring them in, it's a, it's a huge investment. Turnover is expensive. What can I do to to keep them? And I would say the top three things that I mentioned are what you need to focus on. Well, I hear it from my employees who are millennials pretty much every day, you know, in some way or another, that they're looking to grow. They're looking to become better managers. They're looking Mm -hmm. to become better writers. Whatever it is their personal goal happens to be. On the flip side, if you're interviewing, if you're looking for that next opportunity, how do you know if the job that is being offered to you presents that? So I would say two things, just as a little bit of a backstory. You know, I wrote this book from the perspective of the leader and the manager and how do you design a human workplace, whether you're a CEO a mid-level manager that has three people reporting to him or her. How do you create a human team, department, division, whole company? Interestingly, my editor is a millennial. And when she read the proposal, she flipped it and said, wait a minute, these are the 10 things that I look for when I'm trying to decide where to go to work. So which was such an interesting perspective for me. So after she decided to take on this project, when I was writing the book, I, I flipped it and thought a lot about these things from the employee perspective. So I really appreciate the question. Um, what I recommend to people is to look at these 10 things. Obviously, if I've missed any for you individually, add them. You know, you, no job is perfect. No company is perfect. But to really use these 10 things to rank what are the things that are most important to you. Is it professional development? Do you want to make sure you have flexibility and that you're able to work from home? Do you want a company that's focused on wellness or giving back? You know, many millennials today, there's a whole chapter called Give Back. Mm-hmm. They want to connect with their colleagues and 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 volunteer with them because many of us want many more things from a workplace than we did sort of back in the day. So I guess I would say two main things to answer your question. One, use this list and prioritize it and really hone in on those things when you're asking questions. But I would start with the values piece. Talk to companies about their values and push them on, because they're all going to give you the little piece of paper that lists them. Mm -hmm. But many times they're platitudes and they're on the walls. So push them to say, well, what does it look like when someone's living these values in your company? You know, and how do they feel alive? Because that's how the stories that they will be able to share with you when you're interviewing, you'll be able to tell if it's real and authentic. I want to go back to the 10 things in a second, because I feel like we're baiting and switching by just not running through them and making sure that we get them all for people. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about money and your career and your life and inspiring you to always be in the front seat. So whether you're just entering the workforce, running a business, taking a break to raise a family, getting ready to retire, you should 
know that Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you are today and help you get where you want to go tomorrow. And you can discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be with Erica Keswin, author of Bring Your Human to Work. All right, I'm turning to the page that lists them because I don't have them all listed unless you can rattle them off. Um, All right, we got human voice. Actually, I'll let you do it. I will do it. Okay. So one thing people say is, um, why 10? Do you need to do all 10? Yeah. I I tell people, what's great about the book is that you can pick and choose from a menu of options. They're in no particular order except for chapter one, which I talked about, which is be real, speak in a human voice, and it's about knowing and living the values. Because once those values are set, the, the other chapters that I'll rattle through are you can align everything else to them. So the rest are in no particular order, but if you're going to read one chapter, start with chapter one. Chapter two, playing the long game. It's about diversity and inclusion, but where I focus in this chapter that I think is different from other books that talk about diversity and inclusion is the importance of what I call intentional work practices. So if you want to have diversity in your company, but you don't have things like parental leave, bereavement leave, allow people to work flexibly, you're only going to be able to attract one kind of person. Number three, finding that sweet spot between tech and connect. I love that you make people put their phones down in meetings or you suggest, you know, put your phone in a basket so that you don't have the attraction of that device buzzing at you or flashing at you. Well, and the data shows there's a study called the iPhone effect that if you're in a meeting or if you and I are having coffee and one of our phones is on the table, even if it's upside down, it impacts the depth and substance of the conversation. So there are real bottom line implications to the ideas around finding the the, the sweet spot between tech and connect. We spend so much time in meetings, we might as well Get a return on that investment in time and can really connect with each other. Okay, so I'm sure that you've heard this before, but I am not a meeting lover. I, I just, I would prefer not to go to a meeting than to mm-hmm. go to a meeting. Um, and you point out in the book, we waste a huge amount of time and money on meetings because we're doing it wrong. Right. Well, that it's a perfect segue because chapter four is called Mind Your Meetings. And my guess is that you've also had a lot of meetings that were a waste of time because there wasn't a purpose behind them. So I break that chapter down into purpose, presence, and protocols. If you were to do sort of a postmortem on all of your meetings last week, was there a purpose? Who needed to be there? You'd probably be able to wipe out 20% of your meetings. And that's a good first step to mm-hmm. really getting it down to the ones that, that are additive to your work and, and even to your life. Presence, we know that physical presence and mental and psychological presence are not the same thing. So if you do decide that there's purpose behind the meeting, let's get rid of the technology because your productivity will go up because you're not getting interrupted and the depth and the substance will go up as well. And the last is creating protocols because we all are so drawn to the technology that the person leading the meetings, you know, has to create these protocols or the default is going to be that everybody has their phones out. And as a quick little aside, there's a few companies now that when you ha- when you go online to their um, to your calendar and and request a meeting, there's actually a button that can say laptops up or down. So you're signaling in advance of the meeting what those protocols are, which I have to say I love. That that's fabulous. Yeah. 
So I'm going to keep going through? You know, I think we've got most of them. You want to run through them Yeah, quickly? really quickly. Wellness, be well at work. Companies are focused on physical and financial. Thankfully, huge thing about financial wellness. Mm-hmm. Many, many companies are bringing their employees together as a real benefit to talk about what does financial wellness mean and investing real resources toward that. So huge. Giving back. Employees want to work for a company that cares about something bigger than themselves. And if you can do it, you get your employees to buy bond through giving back. Disconnect to reconnect. Rules of the road around when you go home at night, are you actually allowed to unplug? Space matters we talked about. Professional development we talked about. And the last one, say thank you. Gratitude at work. It's a human thing to do. It, it's a human thing to do, not just at work, but a human thing to do. Correct. All the way around. Before we wrap this up here, I've got to ask, your company is called The Spaghetti Project. And in my mind, it was always because you were throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what's <laughs> stuck because that's how I have approached my business. Is that right? I love that. And a lot of people think that, that that's where it comes from. But it, it doesn't, although I love the idea of throwing spaghetti at the wall. It comes from a study that I found when I was doing the research for the book. And the study's done by a guy named Kevin Niffen, who's a professor at Cornell. And when Kevin was getting his Ph.D. in organizational psychology, he had to do research on what differentiates performance among groups of people. And And his father was a firefighter. And that's how he grew up, going to firehouses, hanging out with the firefighters. That was his world. And so he studied them, and what he found was that the firefighters who are the most dedicated to that long-standing tradition of the firehouse meal and sitting around the table building trust, connecting with their fellow firefighters, it was correlated with higher performance, and those firefighters saved more lives. And so as a connector, which is sort of where we started the podcast— you know, this was this goosebump moment for me that there was science to back up what I knew and felt intuitively. And when I started meeting with firefighters and visiting the firehouses and watching Chicago Fire, <laughs> the, the go-to meal is spaghetti and meatballs. And so I decided to call my company and my work The Spaghetti Project, which is a platform that shares the science and stories of connection at work. I love it, and thank you so much for being here and for sharing, and we'll all get a lot out of this book. Um, we will give one away to our readers. Can we have a couple? Of Sure. All right. Great. All right, so we'll give some away on our social media. Look for that at Twitter and Facebook and on our private Facebook group as well. Erica, I hope you'll come back. I would love to. Thank you so much, and Kelly and I will be right back with your questions. And Kelly Hultgren, our producer, has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly. Hi, everyone. So I felt like all roads connect to Erica. I <laughs> No, I think I've been on her radar for a long time. She's definitely been on mine. We've got mutual friends. I just think she is, in this very human way, a big connector. She's a self-proclaimed connector. And I really appreciated everything you guys discussed, especially how to have productive meetings. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know me. I hate meetings. I know. <laughs> okay, so the, again, why do you hate meetings? I hate meetings because I feel like they're largely a waste of a time. A waste of time. But I think if we go in with the framework that she's providing for people, it's having a purpose for them, knowing the purpose, having everyone else know the purpose, keeping them a short amount of time, 
I'd love to put it into practice because having that FaceTime is important. No question. No question. I mean, I would prefer sometimes to just go sit in somebody's office for five minutes and get it done. There are generally too many people, too many voices, too many agendas. Mm -hmm. But I agree. I think she is definitely on to something, and it's not surprising to me that this book is doing very well. I know. Wall Street Journal bestseller. I've been seeing great press around it, so I was grateful she could stop by and spend some time with us. Absolutely. All right. We've got a lot of questions. Yes, we do. And first one is from Susan. I'm a saver and come from a family of savers. I grew up watching my grandmother, who didn't work outside the home but played the stock market like it was her job. Love that. Me too. She purchased stock and products she liked and used in her own home, never selling. I learned from her. I'm the proud recipient of P&G, Texaco, Coke, IBM, Heinz, etc. I'd like to sell some of this stock. Here's my question. I inherited this and have no idea what she paid for it and don't remember exactly when I inherited it. I've also reinvested all the dividends. Some of the companies have had stock splits over the years, merged, and even changed names and split into other companies. How do I account for capital gains when I sell the stock? How do I report the income? I have no way of knowing what the original purchase price was for the stock. Love listening to your show while running the carpool. I've learned so much and have gained a lot of confidence. Well, first of all, I love that last line. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Susan. That's exactly what we're aiming to do here, to give you more confidence to not only handle these things, but Mm -hmm. to be able to ask these sorts of questions. This is a really good question. And the answer is easier than you expect. Here's why. When you inherit stock from somebody who passed away, you get a step up in basis. And a step up in basis means that you own the stock. It's as if you bought the stock on the day that you inherited it. So you don't need to know when your grandmother bought that stock. You don't need to know if she reinvested her dividends. All you need to know is the day she died. That's the day on which you became the owner of this stock. And from there, your brokerage firm should help you answer all of these questions and give you the forms that you need for reporting the gains on your next tax return. And you'll have to report those gains in the year that you sell. There'll be long-term capital gains, which means a um, lower tax rate. And I think it's a really important exercise to go through. Many of us, because we inherit these emotionally charged shares, don't want to let go of them. But if it's at a point where it represents too big a part of your portfolio, then you're not adequately diversified. You've got too many eggs in too few baskets, and selling is absolutely the right thing to do. So I like that you're going down this road. I like that you're asking the question, and it's going to be easier than you think. And you brought to mind my grandfather, who used to sit at his brokerage firm and watch his stocks go by on the ticker that you couldn't get in every single computer and every single phone. So brought back good memories for me. Thank you, Susan. Next, we'll do one for Meredith. I'm 30 years old and started a new job four months ago. My new employer offers a simple IRA plan, and rolling over my 401k has been a headache, to say the least. After initiating the process, I was told that I cannot deposit the 401k rollover, about 3500 into that account since it has has not been established for two years. I had to create a brokerage account. What is my best course of action? Should I move the 3500 into my Roth IRA that has been established for several years with another company, or should I keep it in the brokerage account? If I keep it in the brokerage account, what do I do with it? Here's what's not clear to me about this question. I'm not sure if she moved the money 
out of a retirement account and into a taxable brokerage account. If you did that, then you're looking at a taxable event. If you didn't do that, then just put it in your Roth. It should not be this complicated. It should not be this difficult. And as long as you've already got a Roth account that you are managing, this should be a very easy transaction. The goal when we're moving retirement accounts from one place to another, which is what happens when we roll over, is that you don't want to take custody of that money for more than 60 days. If you take custody of that money for more than 60 days, it becomes a withdrawal Mm -hmm. from that retirement account. If you are not 59 and a half, which you are not, it is a taxable event and a 10% penalty. So I am hoping that you didn't do that. If you didn't, just go ahead and put it in your Roth and call it a day. As far as managing it, you want to look at all of your money as one pool of investments, and you want to look at your asset allocation, the amount that you have in stocks, in bonds, in cash, being appropriate for you across all of those accounts. So it's better not to say, well, here's my 401k over here. I'm going to invest it this way. And here's my simple IRA over here. And I'm going to invest it this way. Look at the whole thing. Figure out, okay, I'm 30 years old. I should have 75 to 80% of my money in stocks. I should have 20% in bonds. I should have a little bit in cash. And make sure that across the variety of accounts that you have, you are accomplishing that ultimate goal. We'll do one more from Stacy. I got a call from a medical collections agency today on a bill I didn't know I owed. I was able to contact the company I owed and paid them directly. They said it won't impact my credit score because it was pulled from collections in less than a day, but I'm worried. Will it? I'm trying to find a new job, and I'm scared of something negative coming up in my background check. I understand the worry because nobody likes to get a call from a collections agency, but things like this happen with medical bills, and sometimes they send them to collections even prematurely. I would not I would not stress about this. I would, however, go ahead and connect the dots from behind the scenes. So it's okay to believe them that they are not going to report this to the credit bureaus. But make sure that you check the credit reports. And if you do find it on the credit reports, then go back to that medical billing agency and tell them that they told you that they were not going to report it and ask them to take care of it. If you do, in the interim, end up in front of an employer and this has somehow slipped through the cracks, explain it just like you explained it in your letter to us. Make sure it doesn't throw you too much. You can remember that the person on the other side of the table is a person who has doctors, who has bills of their own. And as long as you approach this in a very matter-of-fact way, as somebody who hires people herself, this would not concern me. Great. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment, and we've got some very, very good news. There are more 401k and IRA millionaires than there have ever been before. That's according to some new research from Fidelity, which measured balances in these retirement accounts at the end of the third quarter of 2017. 
If you're feeling like you'll never get there, well, don't worry. It is more attainable than you might think. What it takes is not a fat salary, but the discipline of investing at least 10 to 15% of your earnings year in and year out over the course of your career. In other words, if you want to be a millionaire, and who doesn't, it's a matter of discipline, discipline, discipline. And it's not just the millionaires who are receiving good news. Fidelity's research showed that the average 401k balance hit a record high. It was close to $107,000 at the end of the third quarter, with the average IRA balance rising to a record $111,000. Now, granted, some of these gains are attributable to a stock market that was chugging right along. But the report also pointed to several specific groups, including women, including millennials, that have increased their savings game. Over the last year, 32.2% of women 401k investors increased our contribution rates greater than the 30.6% of men who increased their contribution rates, and I am just saying. In more good news, the average balance for millennial 401k holders is now $82,000. That's up from just about twenty grand five years earlier. Now, granted, we know the markets have been volatile of late. Don't get caught up in those short-term movements. Retirement saving is a long-term event, and even though we've got these downturns, you should be prepared for them. The lesson here is that it's just important through ups, through downs, to continue to contribute consistently towards your retirement savings anyway. In the long run, any fears that you have will likely be eclipsed by the benefits you reap, which is why it's really good news, and this is a good news segment, that next year you're going to be able to put even more money into those 401ks and IRAs. The IRS recently announced that it was increasing the threshold for workers who contribute to 401ks to $19,000 and to IRAs to $6,000. And if you're 50 plus, like me, you can kick an extra $6,000 into your 401ks and an extra $1,000 into your IRAs. Those are called catch-up contributions. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Erica Keswin for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We like hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Abby Chow, co-founder and COO of College Backer, and we'll talk soon.